Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. So this, uh, this retreat is the beginning of our little season, which lasts about three quarters of a year. So uh, I suppose I'd better say something especially inspiring. <laughs> Kick off the season. Um, that exercise, that <clears throat> standing exercise that we do, just to get across those particular qualities, uh, that's the platform of your meditation, that is. You know, the, the, those qualities are what you first of all develop before you bring in the inquiry. So the seven factors, right awareness. Awareness is just, uh, well, it's just being here, isn't it? Just like, <laughs> just being here, you know, awareness is all over. Uh, uh, people people put a, a sort of a, a mystical turn on it, but it's quite natural. Animals have it, eh? but everybody has. <clears throat> You're just just being here. Yeah. Um, what turns it into right awareness, of course, is what it is you're aware of. That's the difference. And then there's uh, these qualities of calmness. So you always begin our meditation by establishing that sense of calmness. Say the body, calm body, still body. That's about the easiest. That's the easiest thing we can get. Just to bring the body to us, to a stillness. Yeah? And that immediately affects the mind. Because remember, in, in Buddhism, the mind is... Um, the mind and the body are... Um, are not... Um, what's the word? They're, they're entwined. They're, uh, they dissolve the one into the other. When the Buddha talks about the body... Um, He's not normally talking about the physical body that we know, such as your nails or your bones. He's talking about the sentient body, what you actually feel in the body. And actually that belongs to the mind. It's where the body and mind meet, that point of contact. Yeah? So as soon as you relax the physical frame, the sort of heavy physical nature, it immediately begins to relax this inner body of the mind see? and that <clears throat> brings about a stillness normally speaking we do it by lying down see? and then very shortly fall asleep which isn't really insightful meditation it's only you've got to somehow establish that calmness that you would normally get just lying down and relaxing but to keep the wakefulness that's the problem <clears throat> And that's the sense of passadi. Um, now this passadi actually um, has a connection with curiosity. And curiosity is that quality within us that wants to know. And if the calmness isn't there, then what happens is it gets very excited. And then the mind starts wandering. So these two things balance themselves. But if you try to go into a meditation with just that sense of wanting to know, you often find yourself getting uh, just excited about it. See? Brings in a sort of wrong energy, a restlessness. So if you have this platform of calmness, you say, 
So that's why we use the breath just to bring this sense of calmness. And when that's there, it's as though you awaken that wanting to know. So if you're looking at this carpet, for instance, and just relaxing your eye on it, you see, and then this little bug walks across, and immediately the curiosity comes. See? It's not as though you have to work at curiosity, it's quite natural to us. Hmm? But if the calmness is not there, or if your attention is somewhere else, you don't see it. Do you know what I think about watching, I think it's a football match, and they, they put a gorilla going across the pitch and nobody sees it? You know that one. <laughs> Basketball, was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so sort of a, that's too much concentration, you see. That's too much. So you don't want too much concentration, you want enough to see things arising and passing away. So. Then there's that uh, sense of steadiness of attention, which I think is a much better phrase than concentration, because when you say concentration, it it brings a tightness to it. It brings minds of school and stuff like that, or knitted, you know, a knitted brow and that sort of thing. But actually, it's just it's just steadiness of attention. Now, (coughs) when I first began teaching, I taught it in the Eastern method, um, which is really about effort and concentration. And um, I just found people exhausting themselves. And it was only later I realized actually what motivates us more is, is this sense of inquiry, this sense of curiosity. And that when it comes to energy, if anything, not too much of it. So I, I, I wouldn't worry too much about concentration. If you, if you think, if you, if you ask yourself, do you ever have problems with concentration when you're interested in something? You don't do no, it's just natural. You just, you just naturally want to. So often our practice is is raising that interest. See, raising the interest. And then there's um, this quality of equanimity. See? That's really, really important. Equanimity in the factors of enlightenment has these two qualities. It has a heart quality of uh, not being attached to something. Having no preference, yeah. having um, not not holding on to something, and it has a wisdom quality or a mental quality of not coming from a particular view or an opinion. So it's really a, a very deep concept about a position you take in life. See? Very relaxed, very much at ease with the way things are, not wanting them to be other than they are. See, I mean, I'm talking about the present moment. See, so you're not, you know, you don't find yourself in conflict with the world. Once we are in a situation and we see it as it is, then potential always arises because time changes, changes everything. There's no thing as time; it's just this process of change. So it's not as though uh, when you walk into a situation that you accept it in that sort of resigned way. This is the way it is, and I can't do anything. It's more in the sense of, this is the way it is, and then what can be done? But if you don't see it as it is, then you're always imposing something on that situation. As soon as you do that, you're in conflict. You want it to be other than it is, you see. And that's what we're learning in this meditation. We're learning just to let the body be the body, let the heart be the heart, let the mind be the mind. So if the body feels discomfort, you just let it feel discomfort. Most discomfort in meditation comes from mental states within the body. Heaviness, 
dullness, all those sorts of things. And if there's a pain comes in meditation, uh, then you have to decide whether it's uh, just something which is uh, not important or something which is. So, for instance, if you're getting pain in the back, it may be your posture's wrong. So you have to look at that and make sure your posture's correct. If the posture's correct, then it's probably some mental state caught up in there, some tension. Because that's what we realise, isn't it? That the mind deposits these turbulences in certain places in the body. Hmm? That's why you feel anger you know, in the chest, or you feel grief in the chest. You feel fear in your, in your stomach and things like that. So there are certain places, you see, where it sort of deposits it. <laughs> and often we don't, we're not aware of it at all in our daily lives. But suddenly when you sit, you suddenly get these, these funny feelings come up. But if you feel that, if, if there's a physical feeling, such as your knees, then obviously that's coming from the body, and you just have to be careful, that's all. So these factors, you see, the awareness, <coughs> which is a sort of governing factor. The Buddha goes as far as saying, if, if you get the right awareness, the rest of it just falls, falls into place. You don't have to work at the others. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be aware that sometimes things go wrong. So, <clears throat> if there's too much calmness, there's a tendency to sleep. So you've got to put effort in there. See? Keep awake. If there's too much effort, then it gets tight. And you find yourself getting restless. See? So then you have to calm yourself. So it's a case of juggling these states, you see, until you find yourself in a position of just general calmness, stillness of mind. And in a sense, we ought to try and do that within... 5, 10, 15 minutes of a sitting. And what happens <coughs> if you do that is you find this observation post. That's a phrase I get from uh, Ponika. In It still is the it is the best book to read, um, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. Hmm? He was a German monk. He, he died quite a while back now. What you find is that this awareness, it withdraws, doesn't it? It finds this place above, within the psychophysical organism. Am I correct? <laughs> Not vigorously, please. <laughs> so you're finding this place, you see. Now this is, this is the spiritual point, you see. Because from this place, you can observe what arises in the body, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. You can observe what's arising in the heart in terms of its emotional mood states. And although it's difficult, you've got to be really sharp, you can see thoughts, but you can definitely catch images. Yeah? See? So it's a very um, privileged space that you find when this awareness abstracts itself from that psychophysical organism. Yeah? And our job is to, main, is to maintain that as best we can. Yeah? And just to keep watching, just to keep watching. And our faith, you see, the trust, is that this awareness is itself Buddha nature, is itself the intelligence, and it will come to know, it will liberate itself. As soon as you try, it's coming from some other centre, it's coming from this, I know, this is the way it should be, is it? And as soon as that happens, we're completely deluded. And this, 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 this essence within us, this consciousness, this awareness, it's constantly screaming, get that meditator out of the way. <laughs> See? 
and you get the meditator out of the way by observing whatever is arising and passing away in that calm way now as you're observing things so pain comes up in your knee there's always this reaction to something which is unpleasant so you're always watching this reaction because it's drawing you into a relationship a wrong relationship so um, a mood or emotion which is nasty some sort of fear some sort of anxiety depression you're always watching that not wanting to go there see and remember the two suppressive forces are aversion and fear right that's what's keeping things away from us so by turning on to that reaction you're getting in contact with this aversion this fear hmm? and it's allowing that to die away see that we're able to find that space that courage really to face the original problem okay? and as you face the original problem which is this nasty emotion coming national which is normally felt as a feeling in the body you see you're actually allowing it to exhaust itself okay? it's just it, all it is it's an energy it's the mind which puts a label on it hmm? so when you get something like fear or depression you see the mind suddenly says depression fear so you get this pushing away not wanting you wait for that to die away and as that as that original feeling starts coming up you see and you draw your attention into it it loses that definition it just becomes heaviness or sickliness or yeah and at that point you see all you're doing is observing energy you're a flow of energy and this is a turbulence and if you just give it enough time it exhausts itself and that's one set of conditioning on and then you think ah, oh, no more fear no more depression see oh very foolish <laughs> next morning you wake up with more and that's that's what can be a little depressing and in fact there's a lot of this gunge down there you see but what you discover is that by creating a right attitude towards it somehow it takes the edge of suffering out and what you begin to realize is that the pain which is coming the discomfort which is coming is not actually suffering it's always that relationship that's the suffering see? and when you when you identify with that relationship of wanting and not wanting that is the suffering yeah? as long as we can maintain the position of the objective observer the objective feeler the objective experiencer even in the most disgusting and awful turbulences it's not the same as actually suffering which is when you become it right to observe depression is not the same as being depressed huh? to observe fear is not the same as being fearful and it's catching that distinction you see and realizing that this position of the observer the feeler is a liberation in itself a liberation itself Now when it comes to the pleasant side, see, um, the indulgence brings us, should we say, um, a sense of Nibbana. Because when you're, when you're actually enjoying something, you are, in that moment, perfectly happy. Yeah? I mean, when you get lost in a DVD, that's heaven, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when, you, when you're eating your tiramisu, uh, tiramisu 
it's heaven, isn't it? You see, the, the actual indulgence is not there. It's not doesn't present you with a problem. See? So when you're when you're in love, uh, when you're in a beautiful relationship, when you're out in the country, when you're listening to music, all that is wonderful. But what we don't realise is that we formed a certain relationship to it, and that relationship is is becoming a sort of dependency, and we're describing unwittingly happiness being an emotional state very, yeah, you've got to be careful here. happiness is an emotional state and this emotional state is dependent on something outside me over which I don't have control uh, you see you know, the DVD doesn't get posted the friend dies <laughs> the person I love most disappears and hates me I mean you know like yeah see uh, and then you realize that maybe there's maybe there's a different way of relating to what is beautiful in life mm, that's a difficult one but we don't start really seeking that new relationship until we see the aftermath of indulgence and the aftermath of indulgence is dependency some sort of psychological dependency on something even if it's you know just taking a walk in the country can be something very simple but if you don't get it then you feel that lack hmm? there's a frustration when we don't get what we want yeah? there's grief when you lose it there's a constant sense of anxiety which we very rarely acknowledge which is always uh, that knowledge that there is a possibility of losing it that's why we have this huge insurance industry yeah? and then finally well, something that our society won't link with indulgence is boredom and boredom is the psychological driver for all our commercialism for all our consumerism is boredom I mean I know that they put these adverts out and they blame the adverts and they blame you know, all this clever stuff but actually psychologically it's the inability to be with boredom boredom seeks distraction so you don't have to advertise very much as soon as somebody's bored, they're going to seek distraction. You just put something in their way, you know, cost of coffee, don't matter what it is. <laughs> you just, you just thought, and you've got to go in there and get out of this state of boredom. Remember that after the Buddha was fully liberated, Mara sent his three daughters. Huh? There was sensual pleasure, sexual pleasure, and boredom. See, it comes, it comes with that indulgence. And what that little myth tells us is that even though the Buddha was liberated on that night um, there were still these leftover conditionings which took seven years to burn out okay? so finally it took seven years so <clears throat> really catching that in our lives you see now what happens is I think is that when you when you do that you become afraid there's a possibility that one becomes afraid or averse to pleasure because you see the aftermath suffering yeah? and this is often a big mistake for monastics actually that's why you, that's why you can't laugh in a monastery <laughs> there's no humor you don't crack a joke so you have to be careful that you don't get this idea that you have to get rid of pleasure you have to get rid of the joys of life that would take you into the second mistake of self-mortification now remember the Buddha in his first discourse he talks about indulgence in the world is ignoble, useless, um, 
and all that sort of stuff. And and self mortification, which is which uh, is part and parcel of trying to uh, of a misunderstanding of the role of pleasure and joy, where you're trying to get rid of it, thinking that it itself is evil, comes under the area of self mortification. Okay? And he found that was ignoble and wasn't on the path, and in fact just more suffering. So there's no point in laying suffering on it. So uh, our problem in daily life is to recognize that certain things bring us great joy and great pleasure and after we've enjoyed it just to wait a little bit for the aftermath, the loss, the feeling of something coming to an end, see, just to stay with that, see, and very slowly uh, we, we begin to develop a, a, an attitude within us of enjoying something without creating that psychological dependency. Now that's why um, I stress this business of eating. So when we go for lunch, it's an opportunity really just to enjoy something without indulging. And the problem with these two words, enjoyment and indulgence, is that they're so close. Aversion is very easy because what aversion and fear does, it pushes the object away. So you can always make a distinction between them. But this business of enjoyment and indulgence are, are very subtle. <laughs> and it's only when you begin to work with it that you realize there is a way of being in the world and enjoying it fully and enjoying relationships and enjoying everything the world has to give us without this, this aftermath, see, without this clinging. That's very difficult for us. <clears throat> so, um, in our meditation, you see, when something pleasant comes up, you see, a pleasant feeling, a warm feeling, you see, a peaceful feeling, hmm? or it might just be just a complete relaxation of the body, which can be very pleasant, you see, just, just be aware of that draw of wanting to fall into it, see, and just begin to experience it as feeling, just as feeling. See? and it's fine as feeling is there's no problem it's still very pleasant and it's still enjoyable okay so these things I think are, uh, are very difficult for us to practice uh, but once we begin to catch the aftermath of these things then you tend to be drawn to uh, really investigating this whole area of our lives which is to do with pleasures and joys Uh, just to take a for instance, in our in our work, in uh, whatever work we do, if we do it with the right attitude hmm, and turn it into a service, hmm, then joy always arises. You know, the heart naturally feels joy when you do something from a right attitude. It's just it's just there within the mechanisms of uh, being a human being, and then one sort of enjoys that you see and then very subtly you're beginning to do these wonderful things in order to feel good okay? then slowly you turn yourself from being a saintly person offering your service to the world to a do-gooder and that's dreadful because what a do-gooder does is they do the good they want to do to you whether you want it or not <laughs> because it makes them feel good and you always, you always catch those sorts of people. <laughs> so, 
you can you can see that movement in you see you like doing this you enjoy doing this and then you start doing it for the enjoyment so it's just catching that movement in the mind and re-establishing the right intention that's all it is and this brings us to the role of intention and that's why this uh, standing meditation which is about always coming to a stop see after you've done a job after you've seen somebody after you've had a cup of tea, you just stop. See? Don't take a moment, you just stop. It's a lovely word, stop. And then you see the next intention. And if we can be aware of these intentions, then you can see some of them are taking us this way, and some of them are taking us that way, and there's some that are taking us right on the spiritual path. And it's a case of waiting until that negative intention, whether it's towards some indulgence or towards some aversion just waiting for it to exhaust its energy see? and then very slowly just by by reinforcing those intentions you see are skillful, wholesome you just change yourself you know it's like there's no there's no magic to this system and there's no there's no tremendous great effort unless you have something like a, you know, a severe addiction or a severe mental problem there's no there's no big effort needed. What's needed is patience and continuous practice. Because as soon as you let go, um, the old habit reasserts itself. That's all. See? So people come here, don't they, and they do a week retreat. Uh, occasionally they do a three-month retreat, you see. And, and they go out and, they, and they've reconditioned themselves completely. Even within a week, you, you, you're behaving completely different than in ordinary daily life, you know. And by Tuesday, you're drunk again. See, <laughs> and he's just, <laughs> and he's just been able to sort of maintain that steady road, you see. And to do that, you have to, you have to get in this business of cajoling yourself. Yeah, come off all that criticism, self-criticism. You know, that's that doesn't doesn't do us any good at all. And it's a case of just being very kind and just being very gentle, treating ourselves like children. So, you know, you cajole, you urge yourself towards uh, a more skillful behaviour. Remind yourself that where skillfulness is, there's happiness. Skillfulness and happiness come together. Huh? Virtue, virtue naturally brings us happiness. You don't have to work at it. Happiness is the result. See, if you work for happiness, you're, you're sunk. But if you work... <laughs> If you work for skillfulness, wholesomeness, if you work for that, for virtue, happiness just arises naturally. You don't have to work at it. Now, all that really belongs to the area of, um, uh, what you might say, uh, ordinary daily life. Um, but in a sense we also have to sort of dig at the roots a bit and this is where you're looking at the other two the other two characteristics of uh, existence that's what the Buddha calls them three characteristics of existence now, the first one is to do with our psychology it's to do with um, all beings in Buddhist understanding uh, and it's to do with this business of wanting not wanting yeah but there are two deeper ones which is to do with impermanence and to do with this, this idea of not-self. And the impermanence is, um, you know, it's just, it's just recognising that things come to an end. It's very difficult for us, you know. We're always there at the beginning of things, something new. Uh, that's not a problem, see. 
but we always want to make sure we've got something in place before that newness disappears you never see things coming to an end you know it's like putting the attention on the ending of things the end of a day the end of a job you know just just see it come to an end a full stop and the more you do that the end of a breath for instance the, the end of you don't know whether whether if you're right there with the end of a breath you're not sure the next one's going to come the, <laughs> and the ending of things draws us towards that whole area of, of decay dissolution death you see and unless we touch that area then it's always there underneath us because we know we're going to die and it's getting accustomed to that it's getting the feel for that see and losing our fear of it and then it doesn't impinge on our lives and the way that the fear of death impinges on our lives is that it's a sort of an, an underground pressure see and an underground pressure of, and we're running we're running away from things you see and this all fear all fear is the fear of ending so all fear is the fear of death the anxiety of something corrupting, disappearing, see? And it's just getting getting in touch with that, no matter how difficult it is, uh, that that brings around a certain acceptance of it. See? And with the acceptance, there's a loss of fear of it. See? And the underground, this underground welling of pressure in our lives begins to sort of drop away. Find yourself getting just a bit more peaceful. It's not as though... So long as there's a self, so long as there's a feeling of a me, it's not as though we're ever going to overcome the fear of death. As long as there's me, it's going to die, so it's going to be afraid of it. But it's just feeling, it's, it's getting a comfort with it. This is the way things are. Mm. And eventually, the great gift of seeing impermanence, uh, in the Buddha's words, is that we begin to realise there is nothing in the world worth holding on to. See? you keep repeating that phrase it's got a tremendous uh, well for me anyway uh, it sort of gets into the heart of things see there's nothing in the world worth holding on to there's nothing in the world worth holding on to see as long as you, you just play around with the phrase and slowly it sinks in there is nothing in the world worth holding on to <laughs> and, and there's a sense of release see a sense of release when you release it what have you lost you haven't lost anything. The world's still there. See, what you've lost is this cramp in the hand. So it's, these little phrases, they, they really help to, uh, to sort of form a different relationship to the world. Really. See? And the, the third one is this sense of not self, not me, not mine. And that brings us to the area of not control, see. So we notice that the breath breathes itself. You know, that once you say, once you decide to walk across the road, the legs move. Yeah, you don't have to. <laughs> There's something sort of magical about, about the human body. Um, if you think about the body, like now, do you know what your liver's doing? You know, I mean, you might, in, in a sense of, do you experience what your liver's doing? You might know what it's supposed to be doing. Have you ever felt oxygen being exchanged for carbon dioxide? You know, all these things we know, you know, at this sort of intellectual level, but they're beyond our experience. I mean, I dare say some yogis might get down to that sort of level of direct experience of the body, but for most of us, having a clue. And then you realise that you're an alien within your own body. You're just this, this consciousness just stuck in this frame, and it's getting on with things. 
you know, and sometimes it doesn't, of course. Uh, that's frightening. And when illness comes, then you realise that actually you don't have this. You think you've got this control. You get, like it's my body, but actually, suddenly it falls ill, and you, that's it. So that sense of no control is very much, uh, very fearful for us. But what it does is it, it makes us come back on ourselves to find where is that place of security, where is that place of comfort, you see. And that's what the meditation does, it draws us into this observation post. And the more you see that that space, that that place is unassailable, see? Nothing, can, nothing can touch us in that space. When we fall out of that space, then we're into the world of suffering, we're into the world of samsara. And our job is to try to maintain that sense of mindfulness in daily life. See? These terrible things that are happening in, uh, in Japan, you see. There was once, uh, I heard a tale of some Zen monks when there was an earthquake in a restaurant, you see. And everybody, of course, got quite upset and uh, fearful. But the Zen monks kept eating. See? <laughs> It's like that's what they were doing, eating. So the body, you know, it's like the building's shaking. But, and they know that, you see, but they just keep eating. So it's getting that sort of sense of poise. And it's just practice. It's not as though these things are magical. It's just a case of constantly reminding ourselves to be present. Okay? Now, one of, the, um, one of the confusions is that we have to be self-aware. This position of the observer, remember, is still a false position. There's still some body up there who's observing, who's feeling. Hmm? So it's not quite, it's a good place to be, but it's not quite right, right, because there's still a feeling of some body. And when we take that into daily life, we get the feeling that we should be aware of ourselves. So I'm aware of myself when I'm speaking, I'm aware of myself when I'm writing a letter, I'm aware of myself when I'm adding up my bills, and of course you can't do it. You get all confused. You, you, your sums will be all wrong. You can't, because there's a, a clicking consciousness. <coughs> one minute you're doing this, and one minute you're being self-aware. See? Um, when you're washing the pots, you're supposed to be aware of yourself. No, that's not it, you see. One is aware of oneself, but then one, th uh, one as it were, concentrates, pays attention to what you're doing. And as you do that, there's an absorption into what you're doing. And there's a loss of a sense of self. You're just doing. See? That's meditation in action. And what turns it into a skillful action is the intention with which you enter into that into that action. So if you're washing the pots, something so simple as that, and they're just something you've got to get out of the way because you want to get on with something else, then of course you will absorb into it, but you'll absorb also into anger, irritation, fed upness. <laughs> But if you see the, uh, washing the pots as just a, a simple action of mindfulness, of, of mindfulness action, um, putting aside all that negative stuff, seeing, it, seeing a certain beauty in washing the pots, uh, then of course that's the mental state you, you are developing. And as you give yourself to it, you lose a sense of somebody washing the pot. The pots are just being washed. Yeah? That's meditation in action. And it's a case of uh, keep reminding ourselves of that. Keep reminding ourselves. Eh? Every I I spend about half an hour to an hour, sometimes one and a half hours on emails. And at times I think I'm going to strangle this computer. 
<laughs> you like all these emails, emails, emails. So I have to stop, you see, and say, no, don't. Emails, you know, and I have to get myself into that right frame of mind. And then, of course, it, I enjoy it. It's not, a, it's not a problem anymore. But if I think of it as a chore, as something, you know, like these emails keep coming at me, then you get that sense of boredom, fed upness, frustration, all, all the negativity, you see. And that's all coming because something in me wants to be somewhere else, wants to be doing something else, wants to employ a secretary. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, every time, I mean, the, the great thing about you know becoming aware like this is that every time something is negative, you know that's the wrong frame of mind. That's it. So you work with it. You, 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 you let it um, manifest in its fullness. And you, if you've got time, you let it arise and pass away. If you haven't got time, supposing you go to work and you feel depressed, you park it. You see, that's not the same as suppressing. See? To suppress something means you don't want to look at it. You don't, wanna, you don't want to engage with it. So what you're using there is some sort of aversion, some sort of fear. But you can park things. You can just say, I'll deal with you tomorrow. I'll deal with you later in the day. You see? Then you put your whole attention into what you're doing. And that brings up a different mood. See? And that mood is the mood or the, or the, the motivation, the emotional state that is going to support your work. Yeah? It's like when I... Uh, there was a time in sort of what you want to call... Um, uh, the, all this... Um, Oh, what do you call it? Uh, the psychology of, of um, oh, sorry, I can't think of the word. But there was once a po- uh, I don't know whether this this phase has passed yet. But there was a point where if you felt angry towards somebody or you were upset with, it, you had to go and tell them. I was venting. Wasn't venting. <laughs> That's it. Venting. Oh goodness. So this was presumed that this other person was causing you the problem. So I, when I was at Gaia House, I used to have this, this manager used to come up and she, she would start off our interview with, I have a problem with you. What was I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> I have a problem with you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it was as though she was venting, you see. And the thing is that <clears throat> you don't have to do that, you see, because as soon as you realize that, your moods and your mental states are not directly caused by others but are caused by this internal uh, conditioning that we ourselves have manufactured this is the point we ourselves have manufactured these mental states nobody does it for us yeah? whatever somebody does stops here stops at the stops at the point of contact so if somebody's angry with me i hear the words and it stops at the eardrum I hear that I feel their mood of anger and it stops at the body here where I feel it. It's when I take it into myself and then react with anger, yeah, or with fear, that's that's the conditioning I'm dealing with. So uh, when something comes up, if I meet somebody, if we meet somebody whom we have a disliking for, you know, whom we you know we feel has, has done things horrible to us and all that sort of stuff, you see. We have to recognize that this pain that we feel inside us is self-generated. It's not caused by this other person. And that's why you can put it to the side and still greet the person with at least a sense of no harm. Eh? You might want to strangle them, but <laughs> sense of no harm. And then you deal with this. You deal with this as just a mental state. And remember, you don't think about it. That's not the way to cure the mind, cure the heart. You allow the heart to express itself. 
So you have to sit with that nastiness and slowly it dissolves, slowly it dissolves. And when we do that, that's another little pointer to this business of not-self. These emotions are not me, they're not mine. And they have their, it's like, it's like being, I mean I liken the, the heart to the, to the weather. Storm comes, storm goes. Nice day comes, nice day goes. Our problem is to find a relationship with the weather where it doesn't, doesn't bother us. When we had the opening ceremony, it was chucking it down. And we asked the, uh, the chief monk who was here to offer a blessing. And his blessing was, may the weather not bother us. <laughs> not may the weather go away, see? May there be a change in the clouds. No, just may the weather not bother Which means, may we not be bothered about what the weather is. And we weren't. We just bought them all Wellingtons. Hmm. <laughs> all these monks lined up with green Wellingtons. So that's a sort of very sort of roundabout uh, touching upon our practice and to <clears throat> try and see how it melds into our daily life. So the morning sit, the evening sit, see the morning sit gets you into the right frame. So it reminds you of that level of awareness you want to take with you during the day. Then throughout the day these little stops, see, and if you can extend it to five minutes. You just relax, you see. And then in the evening, uh, always best when you come back from work or sometime even before you eat, it's always better, just to allow any residues of the day to come, some little irritations, some anxieties. Just let them, you know, let them exhaust themselves. And you've got a nice evening out of you. And of course, <clears throat> sleep, sleep so important, you know, good sleep. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the idea of uh, a rushed life and then it's time for bed and you sort of, you sort of fling yourself into the bed. <laughs> and sort of try to go to sleep, pull the clothes off you. <laughs> and it's, sort of, it's so counterproductive. I mean, the whole idea is to wind down, you know, give yourself a full half hour just to let the day sort of disappear. Some pleasant music, some, some meta-meditation, something that that draws the mind to a quietness and stillness and that's that's your mental state just beneath your sleep that's your subliminal state so if you go to bed with a subliminal state of anxiety it keeps popping up doesn't it you can't rest you can't you know so no matter how bad the world is we can spend a little time just just allowing you know the mind to rest the heart to rest and then you get good sleep So if questions come up, uh, you know, uh, out of this, at the end of the day we can you know, bring up whatever needs to be for discussion. So I can only hope my words have been some assistance. May you be liberated by your constant endeavour from all suffering sooner rather than later. <laughs>